With a focus on every detail, the world's best road cycling shoe just got better. Shimano engineers took a 3D look at pedaling dynamics to better understand how pressure is applied throughout the pedal stroke. They discovered distinct zones where force is exerted differently across the shoe and optimized the RC902 shape and materials to maximize power transfer while maintaining a comfortable, lightweight design. The newest S-Fire shoe is available in standard as well as women's specific and wide options. Shimano recognizes that while performance is king, aesthetics are important too. The sleek RC902 comes in four colors, letting you spice things up with stunning blue or the all new red color option. For a more subtle look, the RC902 is also available in the always fashionable black and classic white. Already on the feet of Mathieu Vanderpoel and Wout van Aert, now you can focus on every detail. It was hard to miss Magnus Bagstead, or Maggie, as we used to call him in the Peloton. I mean, come on, blonde, six foot three, plus or minus 200 pounds. He won stages in the Tour de France and then went on to win the 2004 Paris-Roubaix. As we know, Paris-Roubaix has been moved to later in the calendar year, but we had to reminisce a little bit about that special day for him. He's also now a father of two young aspiring female cyclists. We want to know about that, what it's, what it's like. He's a commentator for the English version of Eurosport and GCN. So today, Jens and I sit down with our old pal, to talk about what life is like now. Magnus Bagstedt, welcome to this episode of Bobby and Jens. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, it's been a long time, Maggie. Um, I have to say, it does feel like I know exactly what's going on in your life because I hear you commentating on, on, uh, on Eurosport. Jens is doing it in Germany. You're doing it there, you know, the English version. Yeah. I how did how did both of you guys get get into this and and how long has it been? I mean, it feels like you've been doing it for for quite a while, but I mean, you're still what? 46 years old. I mean, how long have you been doing this already? Yeah. Well, I I actually started already in the in the last year or two when I was racing. I sort of kind of, you know, I've always finished with a Vuelta or something like that and then I actually went into Eurosport and commentated on uh, Lombardia or you know one of the one or two of these sort of later end races. Um, so I, I kind of slipped into the commentary box that way, and then when I retired, it was kind of you know just a a straight way straight into commentary, and I've been doing it ever since amongst you know a million other things, obviously. But um, yeah, that's the one thing that's sort of been a constant in in my life ever since I retired. So then um, you did comment already today on the Basque Country, right? Uh, how, how do you guys do it? I got to like uh, drive all across Berlin to meet my colleague at his uh, office, <laughs> his little uh, station um, in his house. So uh, it's a 45-minute uh, way on the bike or on the car at the same speed um, because it's across the city. So how far do you have to go to your working place? So um, I usually have to go down to, to Bath, which is about an hour, hour and 
15, depending on um, how fast you drive. <laughs> um, alternatively, I go down to London to uh, to the Eurosport offices down there. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a bit of a trek for me to to go there. But you know, it, we started doing it sort of um, remotely last year, um, doing a bit of yeah from home, and it worked quite well actually. A couple of little hiccups, obviously, when when you got to deal with technology and getting streams from every part of the world coming in. I think at one point, Rob Hatch was sitting in Spain. I was sitting up here in Wales and, you know, the Eurosport head office is in, in Paris trying to sort of bring everything together. And um, that that was challenging at points, but I thought it worked quite well. And for me, obviously, really nice being able to do it from home. So you just walk upstairs into the office and, and you're good to go sort of thing. So, um, but normally, yeah, it's a, it's a bit more of a trek. Well, that's where where you are now. Let's let's talk a little bit about the start, like how you got into cycling. You know, not that many Swedish kids back in the day were racing bikes. How did how did what was your initial initiation into cycling? Your first experience that that aha uh-huh moment. So I I grew up in Daniel's game. Um, you know, that was my thing ever since I could stand on my own two feet, basically. Um, and then when I was sort of 12 years old, um, a mate of mine that, that I was doing downhill skiing with, he rode a bike in the summer and he said, oh, you should come along one day and we, we go for a ride. So my dad had a sort of a half kind of race bike stood in the in the garage, way too big for me, obviously. But I jumped on it, went for a ride with him came back and I said to mum can we go there's a local time trial on on Wednesday night can we can we go and mum being mum she said yeah of course I just chucked the bike in the back of the car and we drove up there I took my running shoes went for a 5k run beforehand to warm up jumped on the bike and and won won the time trial um and then three months later I was uh, I, I got my first national title in the time trial as well so you know I, w- I was kind of stuck from that moment on really it was you know, I love I love this cycling, but mainly I was doing it to to start off with anyway to to just you know get get fitter, get stronger legs for for the downhill skiing, uh, which was my my number one discipline and sport for up until I was nineteen, I think. Um, then I had a couple of couple of mishaps on the skis, and I was going really well on the bike, so it sort of decided for me that I was going to be a, be a rider. Didn't you uh, once uh, go into this super speed uh, downhill skiing? Like, didn't you once hit this ridiculous speed of what was it, 100, 150 kilometers an hour, or what was it? Yeah, so the the, the high speeds were were quite usually, you know, quite regular back then, really, because you know we're still back in, back in that day. We had these massive long planks that didn't really have any kind of turning curve on them, so the the speeds were really high on pretty much every um every downhill um course that you did but yeah we did have a couple of couple of straight runs as well and just just topping out over 200 so um you know it's um that that was pretty cool these days um really cool is a little bit slower for me uh with everything that i do riding a bike <laughs> skiing the whole nine yards so okay it's let- funny how it slows down with you know after a couple of years isn't it you, you, you don't go anywhere near as fast as you used to oh it's insane and you know watching <laughs> you guys you guys see it every single day i sit there and hold my breath when i watch bike races nowadays sprint finishes descents especially with guys that i'm i'm really rooting for you're like super stressed that you know something could happen 
And I remember after I retired, I got into the car with Kim Anderson behind Fabian Conchalara when he was doing a time trial. I believe it was like in Romandy or something like that. And I'm in the passenger seat, just putting my head to my, my hands to my head and going, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and after like the first three or four turns, Kim looks over at me, puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, Bobby, following you was the worst. So like, it's just, we it was instant. It was instant. When you are the one that's taking the risk, you don't see the fear. Yeah. But when somebody else is taking that risk, especially somebody that you care about, man, it was a totally, totally different thing. Uh, totally different. Yeah, I, I know that feeling all too well. But hey, Maggie, I remember the days in the Tour de France, you and Stewie, you had some fast descents, my friend. I can remember them when you came flying past me and I'm like, oh, am I standing still or what's going on here? You guys were fearless and you were pretty good at it. Yeah, I think I think we um, we kind of had to be, didn't we? Um, you know, we didn't go all that quickly up the hills. Um, so to save our own skin, to get inside a time limit at times, we, we just you know, had to cut loose. And I still remember, actually, I had a, I became quite good friends with one of the gendarme motorbike riders. And he always asked to be in the group that I was in. Um, and every descent, you know, I kind of, he, he got to know how I rode. And I said to him, always stay just so I can see you uh, going into every corner. So I could see the lean angle of the bike as I'm then coming into that corner. I knew exactly how much he's banking it over. And I knew how tight that corner was going to be and if you touched the brake lights you know too much and i could see that okay that's going to tighten up on me and I'm, i need to scrub off a bit of speed before i go into that corner but we we became this kind of unit of of descending uh apart from that one day when um we're going down to uh i think it was brian son we were de descending into i had a horrible day on the bike that day you know on my own out the back of the gruppetto And on the top of the last mountain, I needed to find two and a half minutes on the Gruppetto to make it inside the time limit as well. And um, at one point, he just, he basically, he's banking the bike over, scraping the panniers on the tarmac, and he just pulled over and waved me past. And just as we got to the bottom, like 200 meters after the, he flattened out, I caught the back of the Gruppetto and uh, managed to stay in the tour that day. So uh, I'm sure you, Bobby, were the other the other end of it. No, I, I remember hearing your guys' stories in the bus, and I was like, wait a second, how, what are these guys doing? But then exactly what you just said was, at that time, you were 90 kilos. You had to get up those mountains, and you were... That's, that, you're being very kind there, by the way. Okay. I, was, I, 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 I sort of raced at about, yeah, most of the time I started a tour about 95 kilos and maybe finished it at 93. I, I mean, so that's a lot of weight to pull up the hills, right? And uh, yeah. but it, it seemed like, okay, you guys were exhausted. You guys were back there, but you seemed as soon as the race was over to, you know, with Stewie or one of the other guys that were in the group pedal, you guys just used to light up and then tell these stories about, man, how fast we went and whatnot. And I, I, I didn't get to ever really experience that uh, because often I was, you know, in the front or in an ambulance being carted away from the Tour de France. So I didn't get to experience that survival thing. But <laughs> yeah, what you guys did was 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 crazy. Um, who, in your opinion then, because there's so many, and we hear so many stories about the best descenders, but those are always the guys in the front, you know, the Nibali's, the mm. Salvadelli's. Who, in your opinion, Magnus, is the best descender that you've ever seen? I gotta say, 
Um, I actually think Stewie is probably one of the best descenders that I've that I've ever seen. When we really had to cut cut sick on the uh, on the descent, he was phenomenal. Just because good bike handling skills, he knew exactly how to how, you know the the braking points and all that sort of stuff. And and he had that you know incredible acceleration out of the corners as well. So if you're trying to follow him. It was just so hard because he, he goes through the corner so quickly and then he's on the power straight afterwards as well at you know max max power and um yeah you really had to to be something special to to follow him down the descent um but i gotta say i think actually i i you know i rode with nibali the first year he was um turned professional he was with liquid gas and he's the only climber that you know i've i've gone fast on a descent and he's come up alongside me uh you know about a quarter of the way down and said yeah we can go quicker than this um and i was like oh yeah now you're talking boy let's go <laughs> so um that was <laughs> that was uh he's he's a he's a spectacular descendant and i think one of the few guys that sort of you know awesome climbers gc riders that that really know how to go downhill in 1998 when you you had to have done that multiple times, been in the gruppetto, had to hit the gas on the descent, because in '98 you won stage number 19 from a breakaway with yeah. Stewie, your teammate. Um, were, were you guys still gone? At the, I think you were still gone, and then you switched. We're to still credit. gone at that time. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. Had, and you had this phenomenal, you know, tour. Stewie was in the yellow. Stewie won a stage. You won a stage. I mean, it was it was great, but I just remember that that sprint. And the names, I mean, okay, it's the second to last stage of the tour. It's kind of pretty much the second to last chance to have anybody win a stage. And the guys that were in that group with you were all looking for the same thing, right? That stage win. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the names and it's all the, you know, the crafty guys, the tricky guys, the guys that I would not want to be in a breakaway with. That's for sure, because they would just, you know, suck me bone dry and just, you know, leave me out to dry. But what? Tell us a little bit about that, because I remember watching that um, impression of you coming across the line and you putting your hands up, and it was just utter pure joy. Not to mention you weren't wearing a helmet, so we could see your, you know, platinum <laughs> yeah. blonde hair uh, haircut, <laughs> and like you said, at at race weight. But tell us a little bit about that because I never got to win an individual stage of the Tour de France. But that that photo, that image of you, is always stuck in the back of my head. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was that, that tour was extremely difficult for for more reason than one. And um, you know, actually, like I said, battling through the mountain stages and. You know, dealing with having to try and get inside the um, the time limit on multiple days, and and then we ended up in Switzerland um, for for the start of that of, of stage nineteen. And I remember saying to Roger Leger that you know I I'd had enough. I didn't want to start the stage that that day because of obviously what was going on with the Festina stuff and and everything around that that stuff, right? And and I was just you know I was green. I'm I'm twenty three years old at the time. Uh, doing my first year at the you know first tour de france and i just i got to the point where i didn't really enjoy it but i remember roger said he said to me look just do one more stage for me and then when we get to to the to the hotel tonight then we can have a discussion about what's going on and i thought you know what okay let's let's leave everything out there so i remember i said to stewie before before when as we rolled off in the neutral i said look 
I'm I'm going kilometer zero minus two hundred meters. Um, so I was already at sixty plus k an hour by the whole time we hit kilometer zero, and and I didn't really look back for the first five kilometers. I was just so determined I was going to pull that pull a break of some sort clear, and I was going to be in it. And um, yeah, that that was it. It was the longest stage of the tour, two hundred forty odd kilometers that 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 day. And um, you know we had George Hincapie in there. There was. Pascal Deramay, um, Eddie Mazzolini, Martin Mbaka, you know, like wiry foxes that that and all all pretty much classics guys as well. Um, so as we got towards the the final of that day, it got quite lumpy and it was a load of attacks coming left, right, and centre all the time. And Stu and me were tag teaming trying to cover them all. And, and I just missed one. And Stewie looked back at me and went, went like, This one's going. And I, I just from somewhere managed to pull that last ounce of energy to to bridge the gap and get onto the back of it. And then from that moment on, because Stu had been sprinting so well, we we're battling for for the green jersey for for quite a while um, for Stewie. Um, I just kind of said to the boys, "Look, you know, it's up to you. Either you ride with me on the wheel, or um, we back into it. I'll leave Stewie out, and and he wins the stage." And and clearly they preferred the first option. So um, as it happened, they started attacking each other and chasing each other down, and just kind of towed me into that final three hundred meters or so. Um, Pascal Dermé did a mega attack and, and almost almost stayed away. And uh, yeah, as we turn into the finishing straight, then to my bemusement, every single one of them lit up the sprint, and it's three hundred meters about probably three four percent uphill uh, so it's like a full flat drag uphill and i'm thinking this is just way too early to go so i just waited and waited and waited and um yeah it was relatively easy to come around in in, in the end and obviously that day changed my changed my life changed my career um kind of went from being an, another guy in the bunch to 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 name in certainly in french media and in swedish media anyway Talking about Swedish media, Magnus, you're the first Swede then to win a Tour de France stage. And until today, you're the first and only Swede to ever win Paris-Roubaix. Are you up there yeah. with Björn Borg and Slatan Ibrahimovic? Because in my eyes, you are. You should be Swedish sports oh, thanks, royalty. You should be in the Swedish sports hall of fame, my friend. No kidding. Oh, thanks, buddy. I, I appreciate that. But no, cycling is too small a sport up there, you know, to uh, to really get noticed. And uh, I guess at the time, back in 2004, no one really knew what, what Paris-Roubaix was. People have heard of it, but didn't know the importance of it. And I think, you know, all the TV TV time that, that cycling is getting lately um, has just changed people's view on, on the sport. And starting to appreciate and understand it a lot more than what, what they used to do, even, you know, when we were racing. Well, I, I remember um, 2004, your victory in, in Paris-Roubaix. We had just got done with Pay Basque, and I'm sitting in there in the, uh, you know, the airport lounge watching my favorite race, and you were in the front. Tristan Hoffman are in, is in the front. I mean, I'm like, all of a sudden, they announce the boarding of my plane. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I am not going to miss this. I don't care if I have to stay here another day. I'm going to stay here. And I had, I had tears in my eyes, not only for you, but Hoffy, uh, Tristan Hoffman, was our teammate at CSC. And it was just yeah. an amazing, amazing thing. And I remember getting onto the plane, absolute last person. 
and walking through the group of other cyclists and, and, um, yeah, my eyes were red, you know, they were like, are you okay? And I said, these are tears of joy. Magnus just won Peru Bay. And everyone was like, started clapping because they had, you know, this was before all the smartphones and yeah, yeah. stuff like that, where everybody know, knew everything instantly. But that was, that was a great memory. Uh, great memory for sure. Wow. That's, that's awesome to you, man. That is awesome. I mean, yeah, what a day that was. And standing on the podium as well with, you know, two, two, what I consider good friends and Roger Hammond as well in, in getting, getting third on the, on the day as well. And with Hoffy there was, yeah, that was awesome. And, you know, it's always the same sort of characters, the same sort of, of names up there. But, um, you know, you, you were on, you were there with, with Hoffy, with Hammond, with Fabian, young Fabian, Museu, Van yeah. Petergem, Van Bon, my boy Hinkapi, Tom Boonen. That that was amazing names, but like they're kind of expected to be there. But we asked Juan Antonio Fletcher a couple of weeks ago when he was on mm. the show, and I'd be curious to hear your answer as well. What would be your dream leading group heading into the Carrefour des Arbes, which is what, 16K to the finish or ish? Yeah, a little bit more, yeah. A little bit more? Yeah. I mean, it tells you how much I know about Perry Bay. Yeah. But who would be, <laughs> if you had to pick four or five guys to be in that breakaway, who who would it be? Right. So, and, and this is all times, yeah, so it doesn't have to be current. So, yeah, um, in that case, I'd I'd love to have um, Roger DeFlamink. Um. I would love to have uh, Sean Kelly in there. Um, I think Bone and Cancellara. Um, I'll probably throw in Museo in there as well. Um, and I think actually one of the guys that I really like to, I, I've trained with him a bit in the past and I, I, I really respect him as a, as a rider, but he's never really made it into that sort of, I guess got the opportunities really is Luke Rowe because he's, he's just one of these guys who he will ride and ride and ride until he, there is nothing left in it. And, um, you know, one of the guys that I, I really wished for him to, to, to win it one day. And I know how much it, it would mean to him to, to get a shot at, at Roubaix and actually ride to, to win it. Um, you know, so a bit of an outsider there. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are kind of the, the real top names that that I would want to hang with in a breakaway like that and look around and go, yeah, this is pretty cool. Love it. Love it. So where do you have that uh, stone you get there at the, um, at the uh, <laughs> ceremony? You have it right there where you are now in your room, in your house, or where where is that stone from, Perry Robey? Um, it's actually sitting down in the living room. Um, so it's got its own little, um, little place that it, it says it sits in. It's since we moved into this house, it has never left the building. So I don't ever take it anywhere. It just sits there. And, um, that's just my little thing. You know, when you're having a, a bit of an off day, um, you know, it's quite nice to sort of just sit down have a cup of coffee, look at that stone and go, nah, you know, life is pretty good anyway. It is indeed, my friend. And you end up winning another stage and a grand tour in the Giro Italia, right? That was a team time trial. They were always yeah, special yeah. moments. How was that for you? Yeah, that was that was such a cool um just that whole team that we had with 
slipstream as it was that, that first half of the year. Um, we worked our socks off to to come to the Jira. When when we knew we got the invitation to the Jira, we worked so hard to to be ready for that team time trial. And, and I mean, there were some some special boys in in that lineup as well. You know, with Dave Miller, Zabriski, um Christian Van der Velde. Um, I mean, you, you name it. It was just a, a lineup a lineup of who's who in in terms of team time trialing and. Um, you know, Ryder was in there as well. Julian Dean. Um, it was just phenomenal to tee off on that day, and we got everything right. And um, coming up the finishing straight, it was we we knew we could hear from the crowds and the speakers that it was so so close. Uh, and just getting across the line and and taking it, I think it kind of been much more than a second, second and a half or something like that that we won it by. Um, yeah, what a day, man! What a day, and quite nice to. Have, I mean, I missed out on the stage in the Vuelta, but to have one in in the Giro and the Tour is, you know, like I, I keep on saying to people when they ask me about these things, is that if you said that I was going to win a stage in the Giro, um, stage in the Tour, stage in or and win Paris Bay when I started out as a professional rider, I probably wouldn't have believed you, and I think I would have settled for for one of them. Um, you know, I would have settled for a podium in, in, in any of them when I started out my career. But um, I wasn't a prolific winner as such, but I managed to pull off a couple of good ones. And, you know, I will, I, I, I cherish those moments immensely. We are deep down into classic season. And if you're looking for some help getting back into shape, don't worry. Active Pass from outside has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code BobbyJens25 at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to velonews.com slash activepass and enter BobbyJens25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now back to our chat with Maggie. So Magnus, now um, you're married uh, to uh, Megan. I was actually there at um, yeah. your wedding. Now Megan, she got a bronze medal in a sprint on a track. She won the British yeah. Road Championship once in 1998. You had a few titles yeah. and medals and places. Your daughter, Eleanor, she won a bronze medal as well, right? Do you actually have like a, a one entire room for your family trophies? I mean, you're building up a dynasty <laughs> there. I'm impressed. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep on getting told here that, that I'm the only one. Um, well, Zoe's obviously coming up and she's not quite at, uh, at the age where she gets to ride uh, world championships and stuff. And she would have been cyclocross, but unfortunately it got cancelled due to COVID. Um, but I'm I'm the only one who doesn't have a a, a medal with the uh, with the rainbow stripes on it. Um, you know, Eleanor has won a couple of medals on on the track, um, in bronze medals, silver medals. Um, Meg obviously won that one in the match sprint. 
and um, yeah, it's it's always. I think it's just a question of time, really, before she uh, she picks one up as well, and then I'm going to be left alone. All I got is a stone. <laughs> that that's one hell of a well, stone. There's no doubt about that. But yes, that's what I really want to talk about here. I mean, being a girl dad myself, that I have two beautiful daughters. They never showed any interest in cycling. How has it been raising two young women in the sport of cycling? Let's let's talk about that for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really interesting. And the, my biggest worry from from day one, as soon as they started showing an interest in in riding a bike. Um, it was always that I didn't want to be um, a pushy parent or perceived as a pushy parent or anything like that. I, it, and it had to be out of their will and their love for love for riding a bike. Um, otherwise, they were never going to get anywhere with it, really. So it was Eleanor took to it very, very quickly, very early. Um, basically, I came home from, I think it must have been the 2005 classic season. And she basically said, Dad, I want a bike like yours. Um, and... That was that. She got her little Bianchi with, uh, you know, 26-inch wheels on it. And um, she went up and down the streets, fell off a couple of times, got back on it, kept on riding. Um, you know, a couple of times when, when she'd fallen off and I kind of, you know, you, you sort of, you want to run over and see how they're doing. But at the same time, it's like, okay, let's um, let's leave leave them to, uh, leave her to it and see how she how she does. And she got it back up on the bike and, and kind of rode over to me and said, Dad, I did exactly like you. I got straight back on the bike. Um, and, and, and that was kind of a, a proud but at the same time quite strange moment because obviously, as we know, cycling is pretty pretty damn tough in, in terms of, you know, with crashes and things like that. Um, and I think that's when we started realizing that she especially really wanted to be a bike rider. Um um, it's always took took a, a lot longer before she really took to the sport and you know we used to go down to a local velodrome outdoor velodrome and we took Zoe's bike with us but she never really rode it and less she spotted someone that seemed to be going pretty fast around the track uh, at which point she came and said can I have my bike and then she parked the bike out there rode a lap realized that she could ride the same speed as this person uh, and then basically pulled off the track and stopped again. And that was that. And she kept on going like that for, for, for years before she really kind of got into it and found that that love for, for riding a bike. But, um, yeah, it's 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 definitely been, you know, it's the, the moments that we've had together going away on training camps and, um, you know, just riding our bikes together as a family um, is irreplaceable in terms of memories. And hopefully they... They will remember them as well when they grow up and they got family and kids and, you know, can tell the stories. Well, you said something funny there, uh, being a girl dad myself, when if I had a son and my son just came up to me one day out of the blue and said, I want a bike like yours, I probably would have said, you have to earn it. But when your young daughters ask you for anything, right? It's done deal. Yeah. Done deal. Absolutely. So Maggie, I, I know that Eleanor last year had a, a pretty nasty crash. How is she doing? How is her recovery going? Yeah, she's she's back, I think, to pretty much where she she was before the before the crash in terms of fitness and um, 
probably better i would say actually at, at the moment um you know she's she's had to work hard to to get back from this uh, spiral fracture of the tibia and a freak mountain bike accident um just going down a, a hill and the front wheel slipped away she put a foot down to to catch herself and uh, she said she felt it straight away that it just went and um yeah that was a tough i think it a really mentally a very tough season for her last year you know she's going from junior straight into signing with arguably the biggest women's team in the in the world in Trek Sigafredo um she's got you know the, the world is lying in front of her and then covid happens um they're stuck out in 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 belgium for a number of months and then decided okay you know it eased off a little bit we could start they could start traveling and said oh let's go home back to the uk for for a few weeks and um you know i was out went out to ride uh ride a mountain bike ride with uh with zoe who's a lot more into the off-roading thing and um you know on our way back um that was the last piece of off-road that we had to do that day uh, about 200 meters left of it or so and you know the accident was there so but at the same time i think um speaking to her now she, she says it's kind of proven to her as well how much she loves riding a bike and how much she wants to be a professional bike rider um and i mean she's had a fair few bumps and bruises through the years you know it's been a rocky rocky sort of um path to to where she is now with uh, she she got knocked off by car concussion um going straight from that into um you know recovering from the concussion and then basically straight into uh, to the team pursuit team for for Europeans and junior worlds and picking up medals. Then two months later, they're on a training camp with a national team. She crashes and breaks a collarbone. Spends the whole winter basically recovering from that and then getting straight again back into it at at top level. Um, I think as a last year junior, she rode a top thirty in 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 the Tour de Yorkshire women's race, uh, women's professional race and and carried on from from there so it's always been quite quite bumpy for her but every time she gets back she gets back a lot fitter a lot better than what she were prior to to the injury and i think that's just a testament to how strong she is mentally and really how much she loves what she what she does well th that's such great news to hear that she has a career plan because let's face it women's cycling has not been where it is now. It has not been a priority. But just no. imagine if she would have had that accident without having the infrastructure that's getting better and better every year with women's cycling. You know, she, she could have like just pulled the pin. But, you know, so many of these world tour teams are have a women's team. I'm talking about the men's team, you know, having a women's team as yeah. well. And it seems like that's becoming the norm instead of just the absolute exception. I mean, let's let's talk a little bit. Do, how do you see? I mean, you you have two daughters involved in the sport. You're obviously active in the sport yourself. Your wife as well. How how do you see women's cycling growing moving moving forward? So I I think we're in at a really a big junction right now, a big cross crossing point where the the tv time that that we're getting with women's racing now um in a lot of races a lot of actually smaller some smaller races as well are getting broadcast i think that's the that's the important part for for women's cycling 
Um, I know there's been some teams that, that have sort of stepped outside of the mold and created women's teams, like you know, Trek obviously being one of the one of the main ones when Bike Exchange as well have had a, a strong women's team for a number of years now. But it's not been the norm, as you say. Um, and I think now that we're getting a ton of TV time for women, uh, and that's just going to grow, I think. Um, you know, there's loads of sort of organizers and broadcasters, and you know, they're they're, they're investing a lot of money and time and effort into uh, making sure that the women's races are available live on TV. The the moment we start getting a good calendar together with um, with all the tele- television as well, that's when women's cycling is just going to explode in terms of sponsorships coming in. There's so many female-specific brands out there who really you know, just dine for a different avenue to market their products through. And, and I think cycling will be one of those um sports where you know a lot of those brands will be able to to really get a good return on the investment um but yeah i think it's still a couple of years away um i mean with the women's tour de france um coming on i think that's just going to be the uh, another big catalyst to to making sure that that you know they're pretty much every every men's world tour team is going to want to have a women's world world tour team um, to make sure that they can they get the maximum exposure and let's just hope that the A's will call it the uh, Tour de France Feminine or something like that as well so it is actually the Tour de France because there used to be a Women's Tour de France but it wasn't called the Women's Tour de France it was called something else I can't remember now um, but you know if it's not called Le Tour it's not Le Tour is it um, and I really hope that, that we, we can get that big uh, big kick Well said I can only agree You're absolutely right. And it has to be the Tour de France for the women, right? It has to be the ASO yeah. putting it on. And it should be more than just one day race or two days. It should be at least a week. Better would be 10 days. But let's start with a week of a women's Tour de France. That's what the girls, like you just said, that's what they deserve or what needs to be done. Yeah, 100%. I mean, to me, it's, ideally, we would get to the point where, where they can ride, where they get a three-week grand tour as well. But I think that's probably some time away to get the the um, the broader specter of like the, the number of riders who are capable of it as well. It's not like we can just go tomorrow, we're going to ride a three-week grand tour. I think everything has got to take baby steps forward, uh, just little by little, making sure that we get the, the, the sport is set up in the right way. The teams are looking after the riders in the right way with the right sport directors and nutritionists and everything else involved and getting the right budget in place so that the women can focus 100% on just riding their bikes because there's still so many riders out there who are not paid um, to, to proper level where they can effectively afford to live off just riding their bikes. And I think that that needs to change before we can start implementing you know, for the women to be away for, for three weeks and, and racing their bikes and having the time to train for that and to recover from it and everything else. But I, I think we're, like I said, we're, we're on the right path now. And um, let's just hope that this COVID situation can settle a little bit so we can get some more races onto the calendar and, and you know, they can showcase again because, I mean, the racing that the, that the women have had and the men, but I, at this particular moment, it's the women's racing has been spectacular over the last year. It really has. I mean, across the board, uh, the sports go in places, but um, the women's side of it is, is, is what I'm really interested in seeing in the future. An ambitious undertaking. 
to make the best race shoe even better. Shimano engineers studied pedaling dynamics while examining different rider types and pedaling styles to create its most technologically advanced cycling shoe. The pinnacle of road race performance. Every aspect of the S-Fire RC902 shoe is designed to maximize power transmission, comfort, and performance. Now back to our chat with Maggie. Well, um, just a few more things. I know uh, it's getting late there. Um, you know, you being this fancy pants commentator, and I'll, I'll direct this at you as well, Yenzi. <laughs> you know, you guys, you guys know what's going on. You guys been there personally. Now you've seen it. I'd like to ask both of you, what what is your opinion of this new generation of riders? I mean they're doing things that we never even thought about and it, it's just it's just mind-boggling sometimes how what do you think has changed in between the time of when we were racing and now especially having you know, watch it every single day so for, for me um the biggest difference right now is that the kids that are coming up into the professional ranks are so much better at that age than than what we were uh, and the way that we trained and looked after us, uh, ourselves they're coming into the first year under 23 they're 19 years old and and they're basically fully fledged professional bike riders in terms of professional athletes i should say um in the way that they look after themselves and i think it's is a realization from a lot of coaches um, and a lot of people around the world going, well, you know, we don't have to necessarily wrap them in cotton wool because I, I don't know if for you guys, but I certainly remember for, for a long part of my youth, they were saying like, you know, let's not go too quickly. Let's not move too fast. You know, we've got to build it slowly. Your career is going to last for a long time um, and all the rest of it. And uh, it was almost like, you know, it took until my um, my national team coach, actually, when I was second year junior, I think it was, he came up to me and he said, well, what would you rather be, a burnout 23-year-old who knew where the limit was or a 30-year-old who never got to go places uh, and never find out where that, you know, how good you could be? And that answer for me was dead simple. Um, you know, sign me up on the first one. I want to see how good I can get and how quickly I can get there. And, and I think that's happening now as well with the sport where it's just, okay, the kids have got um, technology readily available, um, you know, the, all the training tips, nutritional tips, everything is, is on the internet. Uh, there's a lot more educated coaches these days in, you know, everything. The one thing that was still lacking, I think, is actual, true, proper strength training for cyclists in in and and done properly that is still massive massive um step to go but it's it's improving um but apart from that you know the kids the kids are that they're putting out numbers that that we only dreamt of at that point um and also i think divert been a little bit, bit more diverse like we're talking about vanderpool and Wout van art and you know steve R and these guys that coming from cyclocross um, and the fact that they're riding different disciplines, I think, helps them in so many ways to access different um, energy sources and powers and, 
you know, handling their bikes in different ways. You, you never see them stressed on a bike, which, you know, like we all, you know, well, certainly I know what it was for me coming into certain sprints and you got, it got a bit tight and you're sort of riding the edge of, of the tarmac and you're sort of panicking a bit about it. But looking at those guys, they're never really, they're not bothered because they've got such control of everything that they do. Um, and I think for me, that's that's the biggest step. And what about you, Yanzi? I mean, you you watch all these races as well. What what do you see as the main differentiating factor between our generation and the new generation? Well, Magnus, you took the words right out of my mouth. That would have been the first point I noticed. <laughs> the young kids, I mean, when we started, they went like, oh, la, la. Il est très jeune, il est très jeune encore, he's still young. I mean, I remember when I did, uh, I, well, I signed late for a pro, I was 26 already, and I finished, I don't know, somewhere 55th or 60th, whatever, in my first Liege, Pastor Liege. And the team was proper happy that me as a Neo Pro, yeah. I finished in my first participation. They looked at me like, wow, serious performance, you finished, um, you finished Liege, yeah. Pastor Liege in your first year. Nowadays, if you're a Neo Pro, you want to work straight away. You want to run a top 10. So, yes, that's the biggest change. The kids come to the sport. They are ready as anything. Um, second thing I noticed when we started, like if you still raced your bike at the age of 32, you were grandpa. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. Valverde is 40. I raced until I was 43 years old. Um, Chris Horner raced a long time and successful for a very long time. Uh, careers seem to last longer if the rider has the desire to keep going because the teams take better care, right? The whole environment mm, yeah. got better. Team buses, you got a chiropractic, uh, you got a masseur, you got a team doctor, you got a press officer. So they really take care of the riders and that's why careers last longer. So yes, the young kids come into the sport absolutely ready And the old guys, they last a little longer if they want to. Yeah. I've got to add one thing to that as well, and that, that is the patience that the teams are having now with injured athletes, um, I think, is is one of the things that really allows the riders to continue with a career for, for, for a much longer time as well. And I just, you know, I, I keep on saying every time I talk about Eleanor, I, I do take my hat off to the whole Trek-Segafredo team, the way they have looked after her with her, her broken leg. It was like straight away, within seconds of Eleanor calling uh, her sport directors and, and team staff, they said, you are not racing this year. Um, so don't even try and rush back to be ready for, you know, uh, racing was going on quite late last year in, into late October. Um, you're not racing until the numbers are back where, where they should be. So in training, you're performing like you were before the injury. And that's a bare minimum. Um, and just take the time, just make sure that it's healed properly, do the rehab, do the training, do the strength exercises, work on bone density, everything else to, to be ready for when you return to, to the bike and then you're returning at the point in the, in the peloton as well where you're familiar with how racing happens. Um, and and I, I, I think the fact that we've seen so many more riders when they got injuries, they've been given the time to just take make sure that everything heals up properly because rather than rushing you back to have you for three races and then have a half-hearted you know everything kind of uh, flaps around a little bit doesn't quite work and never, never quite makes it back to that level having that rider you know who wants that you know give them that that five months time six months whatever it whatever it takes to to get back and and be fully fit and healthy and then we get a lot more out of that rider long term 
And also I noticed uh, I noticed there teams seem to show a little more loyalty towards the riders. I remember a few times yeah. in my younger years, they would ask you, be loyal to the team right until you fall off the bike for your leader. And you would do that for like half the season. Yeah. And then by the end of the season, you go, um, I want another contract. Can I maybe have like 1,000 euros more per year? They would go, hey, how many results do you have? How many UCI points? You go, yeah, but you told me to write my back yeah. off. And you know, and he would go, yeah. yeah, but look, you don't have this points. So we couldn't give you another contract or we couldn't give you like a little raise of like, you know, 5,000 euros per year, right? And that seemed to be better. Yeah. If a rider is loyal and works, they keep him in the team and they don't ask him, they don't put pressure on that rider to perform. He said, no, your job is to bring the leader within the last 10, 15, 20 kilometers. As long as you do that, You will have a contract because that's your job. That's what we ask of you. So that makes a riders more easy in their heads and they can focus actually on their job instead yeah. of trying. Well, if I only ride for 85%, I can still finish 11th and then I will save my contract. And that's bullshit. But so, yeah, things have changed. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Maggie, you, you used to race without a helmet, for God's sake. They took away our Spinacci <laughs> bars, for goodness sake. Um, you know, yeah. now you can't do the super tuck. N now... Things seem to be so strict, but what is up with Mickey Shar, one of the most loyal and respected domestiques in the Peloton, getting chucked out of his main objective? Now that Perry Roubaix is gone, he's there for Greg Van Evermet, and he chucks a bottle to a fan. Are we are we going too far here with with? You know, all these little rules, no super tuck, you can't do this, you can't do that, and now you can't litter. And I think we had another kid um, from from Rally, Kyle Murphy, he accidentally dropped something, and he's kicked out of the race. What, what, what's your opinion on that? Um, I, I don't even know where to start with, with UCI and most of the, the rules that they're bringing in. And, you know, they, they seem to focus an awful lot of sort of energy on on certain things and they forgetting a large part of the important stuff as far as i'm concerned and you know let's go back even back to when we were racing and start there for 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 a second do you remember the team meetings you used to have when the, the sport director said to you where to throw the bottle every single time make sure you throw it to a fan because there's always someone there picking up the bottle and it's it's advertising it's another marketing tool for us as a team right I, i don't know how many times i've heard that being said you know during my career i'm 100 sure that it hasn't changed since then yes there are some irresponsible people throwing it out in the field and whatnot but if you go to the rule that okay drop it at the feet of some fans on the side of the road because it feeds that you know i, I remember going to to tour of sweden back in i think it must have been 90 For, no, but even 87 he was um, and watching there and getting a PDM bottle and I was the biggest fan of that team for the next two years just because I had that bottle and it was stood up in, in my bedroom and you know I kept on looking at it, the coolest bikes and everything else that, that was where I wanted to be so that one bottle really is another thing that, that really got me hooked into cycling and I'm sure there's hundreds of kids out there who and hundreds of people who still have that same experience as me picking up that bottle at the side of the road the parents haven't taken them to watch a bike race and they go home and they you know they they cherish that that souvenir 
So the fact that we're now not able to to drop a bottle to a fan, I think the UCI is shooting themselves in the foot there because we're losing marketing money and now we might as well ride with complete standard clear bottles and and we're nothing printed on them because you know why go through the expense of of having them all branded up and the bottle sponsors why sponsor it if they can't have their brand on them so all of a sudden now the teams have to go and buy their bottles to for 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 all the riders it, it's just such a, a, a an awkward thought process uh, that they've gone gone down to to clamp down on on especially the bottle side of things you know littering wrappers i mean it's quite easy to spot if a rider is trying to put him in the put, put a, a, a gel wrapper or something like that in his pocket he's got two pairs of gloves on it's freezing cold and it's raining and he misses his pocket i mean at least the uci guy should that that's commissaire that's on the motorbike should know what it's like to try and put something back in your pocket or even get something out of your pocket i mean good well done to the guy for getting the gel out in the first place um you know let alone putting the wrapper back in his into his pocket so there has to be a little bit of sort of understanding of what it's like to be on the bike and what you're going to do if you hit a bump with your on with your with your bike are you going to are you going to sort of hold on to the to the wrapper and go down and crash or are you going to let the wrapper go and and grab a hold of your handlebars i mean just little things like that has to be taken into account to when 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 we're looking at these rules so for me yeah, I'm I'm not particularly impressed at this moment in time. I honestly thought that it was a late April Fool's joke that somebody put that on the internet that that actually yeah. happened. But um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a very good joke, was it? No, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, Mickey Shar. Everyone loves Mickey Shar. Everyone respects Mickey Shar. And uh, yeah, it was terrible. But listen, Magnus, this was fantastic. We have to have you on again. We can go down so many more rabbit holes. Um, I had so many more questions, but uh, you know, we got to be a little bit mindful of time. Thank you so much for giving us, you know, so much of your time. And it was great catching up with you, man. It was great seeing you. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Good to see you guys, definitely. Okay, everyone, on to our very very famous and prestigious hashtag shut up legs award of the week Jens who do you got this week well my friend I almost felt like I should go for every single rider who is in the race with Primoz Roglic and Pogacar because you know you only race for second place and so I almost wanted to give that uh, prize to everyone still standing at the start line and not giving up but after uh, I thought about it, I clearly have to give it to Dylan van Baale, who had a 50 kilometer solo, which were the reigning Olympic champion Greg van Avermaet and the reigning champion of Milan San Remo, Jesper Stuyven. For about an hour, he held a 30 second gap to them and finished it off with a glorious win at uh, Dwarstor Flanderen. So he is my shut up Lex rider of the week for me it's going to be alejandro valverde i mean this guy has been pro since 2002 he's won and won races consistently for that long and i i think he turns 41 at the end of this month but winning the grand prix miguel indurain at his age the way he attacked the way that he left his breakaway companion he is my Hashtag shut up legs, rider of the week. Well, that was a really fun interview with a very close 
old friend of ours. But that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Magnus Bagstedt for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a VeloNews production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer, Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Kurt Warner. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.